Welcome to Getting Personal with Daphne Bugler and Isabella Hobbs, your go-to podcast for all things emotional. Tune in weekly as we're joined by familiar faces from the worlds of sport, music, film, activism, and everywhere in between to talk about how emotions have shaped people's lives. And welcome to episode two of Getting Personal. I think we can both agree, Isabella, that the support and response we've had since launching last week has been overwhelming. So firstly, from us, a massive thank you. And also, thank you to everyone in Jamaica who helped us get into the top 20 society and culture podcasts on their chart last week. Also, Daphne, we've had so many questions coming in about your accent. Can you please explain? Oh my God, it's so funny. I literally, I get this all the time. Um, People always think I'm Scottish or Irish, but uh, funnily enough, I'm actually Canadian. Although I would say my accent is not as strong as it used to be. So I do get it's confusing, (laughs) but moving on. (laughs) Our guest today is an award-winning celebrity life coach, speaker, and best-selling author. His latest book, Survival Mode, is best described as a how-to guide for men to navigate through their emotions and trauma, which he illustrates by depicting his own personal narrative of abuse, depression, and low self-esteem. With suicide rates and mental health issues rising rapidly among men, our guest's latest book aims to be an effective tool to be used in their healing. Through his writing, he's spoken about how important it is to him that he's found a devoted audience of young men of color who've connected with his vision of masculinity and emotional intelligence. He now lends his expertise to the New York City Department of Education, as well as several colleges across the city. He was invited to take part in the City University of New York's Black Male Initiative and was also honored by Black Enterprise Magazine. We are honestly so excited about this episode. So today we are getting personal with Purvis Taylor. Before we get started, this is a little disclaimer as our audio this week will sound a bit different. Purvis is in the States and didn't have access to a mic, so we apologise if the sound quality isn't up to our usual standard. So having just finished your book this morning, um, I'd love to just hear from you a bit about what your journey has been to getting to that book and how emotions why you decided that this was something that you really were passionate about and yeah well firstly thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for the kind words about the book i'm i'm honored um my journey with emotions has has been like you know i remember being a child and my father used to always say stop crying stop crying but i needed to cry you know what I mean? Or people or my mom would be like, stop crying, stop crying. And I needed to cry. And and I, as I matured, as I got older, I recognized that I was holding so much in. And it was a lot. It was in my chest that I needed to get out. And And by the time I got to college, I had like a breakdown because I was suppressing all the emotions that I was holding inside for so long. And and so I recognized in that moment that emotions are important. And I think my father at the time who ended up passing from a heroin overdose, I think he had his own experience with his emotions and he allowed me to start being who I was. He stopped 
telling me to stop crying. He was like, well, son, if you need to cry, cry, but just get yourself back up. And so throughout that, I guess my parents all went on their own emotional journey and they recognized the importance of them. And that's how I kind of arrived at that place. And I recognized that if I was feeling that way, so many other men were probably feeling that way as well. And so that's kind of like in the nutshell. I mean, it's a lot of things that happened. I mean, I, I experienced uh, molestation. I was bullied. There's a lot of things that I was holding on inside and I didn't have a space to share. And and so what it did is just turn me into kind of like a catatonic state where I was I was present, but I wasn't being my most authentic self. Something that I wrote down earlier when I was reading your book that I wanted to just touch on a bit here is that you said one of your quotes um was that we as a society are in the poker face era. We want to look cool, calm and together. We want to look as though we've never experienced anything. And that really stood out to me in how accurate it is and how so many of the people that we speak to or in just our own lives have that kind of perception and that all of us on a day to day, when we experience stress, it's like, no, we shouldn't feel like that. Or, you know, what can I do to look like I've got everything together? So we're in your work as a life coach, right. what kind of uh, response do you get when people first come to see you or when you first interact with people who probably have this preconception and how do you start debunking that? Yeah, it's funny. I actually just had a session with a man uh, for the first time. Um, and he said, you know, my father told me I wasn't allowed to cry. My father never hugged me. He never did all these things. And he said, I, I recognize that this is problematic for me. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, you're a grown man now and your father doesn't have control over you anymore. And he just stood there and looked at me. He was frozen. And I saw this tear come down at the corner of his eye because he didn't realize that emotionally he was still a child and that his father's impression on him still had held him captive. And so I said to him, I said, you have permission as a man to be human and to be human means to experience and feel your emotions, to process it, to process them. That's a sign that we're human. Right. Is that emotions, they, they, they are indicators of where we are on this journey called life. And I said to him, I said, you have the right to be whole. You have the right to experience that emotion. And I said, you know, once you experience it and can um, articulate it and, 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 and really accept what you're feeling, I said, you're on the journey towards healing. And he was just like his eyes were like this. He was just like, are you serious? I was like, yes. I was like, yes, absolutely. And so that was so new for him because his whole life was, you got it. You can't cry. Men don't cry. You have to keep it moving. It's so touching in your book when you've, when you wrote about the, the men in, in the audience who were listening to you speak. And when one of them broke, broke down in front of everyone and you wrote that you saw yeah. not a grown man crying, but that five-year-old, the emotions of a five-year-old who was not allowed yeah. to feel, was not permitted by um, the adults in his life to let himself be vulnerable. And I think it's just so incredibly important that you are encouraging men everywhere because it is, there's such shame upon men for expressing themselves, for being emotional, for crying. So it is, I'm, yeah. I'm so incredibly happy and so pleased that you're putting this, this positive space, this positive world, this book out there that I think will influence men everywhere. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. And it's funny, you mentioned something like with both my parents, I saw my, I've seen my mother cry once. And I've seen my father cry twice. 
And so that affects a child emotionally. It teaches you that emotions are not okay. You know what I mean? And so one of the things that my brother and my sister, what I hope to do when I become a father is to show them that that's okay. To, to cry from, to show them that that's actually a strength, not a weakness. I just like to pull out something that you also mentioned in your book, um, which is how significant the race and gender are in the way that we are able to perceive emotions in the way that we, you know, society makes us feel like we can perceive them. So would you mind basically just running us through um, what you said in your book and just kind of expanding on that for us about how race and gender do play such a significant part in how different um, races and different genders are allowed or given space or permission to um, deal with or to acknowledge their emotions? Absolutely. Um, in terms of, of, of race, right, I remember an experience, um, my first job here in New York City, and I was 22 years old, and me and my coworker had a disagreement. And the day before, there were two white ladies who had a disagreement, and it was it was like fever pitched, like it was really intense. They were cursing at each other. It was bad. I thought they were going to come to blows. It was that bad. And I remember nothing happened to them. And I remember when me and my coworker, she was a white woman, when we got into it, and she actually, you know, in hindsight, you know, in hindsight, they they acknowledged that she was harassing me. Um, when I got into it with her, they escorted me out the building, and it, and I didn't curse. I wasn't volatile, but it almost was perceived as if I was this angry black man when I was just really defending myself. Right. And so that taught me that as a black man or even as a black person, what my my passion could be deemed threatening to other people. Right. And so that means that I have to siphon off who I am. Right. So I have to present a partial representation of who I really am, which is which doesn't feel good. No one likes to feel contained. Right. And when it comes to with women, um, it, as far as the genders, you know, women by nature are communal. You guys can you guys cry. You get, you know, you and your girlfriends you have to just talk about things and it's like no judgment. Right. And so with men, it's not the same. It's, um, you know, I say in the book that, you know, women don't ever speak like 30,000 words a day. Men don't ever speak like 10,000 words a day. And I always say that your healing is in your words. So the more words you can use, the greater your healing will be. So if women are using 30,000 words a day and communicating with each other, the healing is, 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 um, it's more optimal to happen. And with men, uh, because we're socialized to not be communal in that aspect, unless we're talking about sports, sex, or, you know what I mean? Like the, the basic things, um, it really, it really does hinder us because we're not allowed um, or nor are we given the, the lexicon to express the emotions um, that, we're, that we're experiencing. Mm, like you talk about the stereotype of, of that angry black man that so many are labeled yeah. and a white man would, yeah. be, would be called passionate about a subject if he was raising his voice yes. about something, whereas yes. a black man would be called aggressive yes. or violent. Um, yes. Moving on to yes. the emotion of anger and um, the stereotypes that come with it being who you are. Um, could you tell us a bit more about an experience with that emotion of anger or some a poignant memory? Um, 
I was thinking about this last night because I was I was going over I was reading uh, what what you guys were asking about and for anger, um, that's a very very tough one for me because um, I always get to the bottom of my anger, which is the hurt and the disappointment. But the time that I was like exceptionally angry, I would say was when so that situation I just named at the job and when we had the meeting, the follow up meeting. I was so angry that I couldn't even speak. Like my voice was trembling because I was so enraged that they had the audacity to escort me at the building and embarrass me. Right. And I remember sitting in that meeting and you could feel um, my friend who uh, worked in the upper management time. She said, purpose, you could feel the heat coming off your body. That's how angry you were because I can't be- I couldn't believe that they did that to me. And um, I started crying in, in the meeting because it was just so like and I knew I couldn't do anything and I felt powerless and I felt helpless. And I just felt so angry that I was so that I felt so powerless at the time. And I think that 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 experience, it changed me because now before I get to the place of being enraged, I try to talk myself down. I try to acknowledge what I'm feeling as it progresses. And um, I have the language now to describe what it is that I'm feeling at the time. But that I will never forget that meeting. I would like I couldn't even speak like my voice was trembling and you could literally feel heat coming off my body. I think what you're saying leads on quite nicely to a discussion of fear. So I'd love to know from your perspective um, if you could talk us through what that emotion looks like to you and how it's manifested itself in your life and really what your experience with fear and with overcoming fear looks like. I will say this, I'm acquainted with fear and um, I hate the way that it makes me feel. It is so disempowering. my relationship with it is like it's hindered me the emotional fear in some ways and i will say i, I was thinking about this too i was i was uh, i spent some time in la because i have clients i have celebrity clients or whatever in los angeles and um this particular time in my life things were not going well business-wise for me so things in new york were just like up in the air like i didn't know i was going to live and there was just all this craziness happening and when i was in la everything was great then i had to go to the airport And I remember sitting in, waiting to board and hoping that the plane gets, my flight gets canceled because I was so afraid to come back to New York because I didn't know what was waiting for me when I got here. And I, and I started crying. Um, I remember I spoke, I was on the phone with my ex-girlfriend and I told her and I just started crying on the phone. And she was like, it's going to be okay. And it was just like, because I didn't know, you know, fear is like, I didn't, I felt like I wasn't in control of anything. I didn't know what was happening. And, and that experience, I, yeah, I still hold it. It's still in my body. Cause I remember sitting in that chair, like, you know, just terrified of, of, cause I didn't know, you know, New York is not a city for you to like be aimless in. I mean, no city is, but particularly New York and, and just not knowing what was the future held for me. So, um, but I, I was brave. I got on the plane and 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 I, you know, I landed and here we are. So how in your life have you found bravery or found the courage to overcome um, moments where you might feel consumed by fear or where the fear almost feels overwhelming? So how do you how do you get out of that and how do you 
kind of summon bravery or courage within yourself? Well, you know, the thing is, is that I always make this statement. I said that no one is born ill-equipped. They're just born ill-informed. And I think a lot of us don't know what we have until we need to have it. Right. And so for me, I didn't know that I had bravery until I experienced fear. And so they go hand in hand. And so unless you know what I mean, I'm telling you, you have bravery, you have courage, you have it. Right. You just have to access it. And so what I did was I made a choice because we've all felt um, anxiety. Right. Fear can trigger anxiety. It can, and let me tell you something. I've had anxiety so bad when I was younger that my hair fell out. And I was like, you know what? I don't ever want to experience that again. So I have a choice. You know, I'm going to let this fear hold me or I'm going to fight. I'm going to push past it, even though I know it's there and still choose to be brave and get on this plane. You get what I'm saying? So it's like it's I think it's one of those things where you have to kind of like you kind of have to fight your way through it. Right. It's not an easy thing, but it is. But it's something that you do possess. We don't. And here's the thing. You're like you need to have those experiences of fear. You need to have those experiences of anger. You need to have all those things happen to you, those disappointments, because that brings out the real you, the beautiful you. You know what I mean? Like if life is easy then you don't ever get, get to know who you really are. And so in those moments, I say, like, when you experience fear, it's an opportunity for you to, uh, to know the brave you. It's an opportunity, right? And obviously feel the fear. I'm definitely not saying don't act like it's not there, but feel it, but also know that you can choose bravery and you possess it already. Mm, it's not, courage doesn't come from the absence of fear. Like you said, it's it's accepting that fear and feeding off it, but still choosing to make choices and to be brave. Powerful thing when you can find that in yourself to to push through. And then afterwards, I, it's like, I know in my own life, those moments where I do push through are often some of the memories that stand out to me the most is like why I'm so proud. And it's interesting how those yes. really negative moments can turn into something that you look back on and you're like, wow, I'm so glad I went through that. I'm so glad I was present in that emotion and felt it to its full kind of strength, which is really interesting. It's something else you said in your book about that we talk about a lot when we're talking about kind of just dramas in our lives or boys or whatever and we talk about like if you're feeling really like if you are like heartbroken or sad you just need to feel it to that full extent and then you can move on but if you don't move on and you don't feel it then like I think you mentioned in your book you had that example of a woman who had gone through divorce and you like you said that actually if she feels it now then she'll be in a better place for her next relationship then her ex-husband who yeah, just he's going on. to implode he's just gonna yeah yeah he's gonna implode he and that's and that and that's what that's what ended up really? happening wow. in that scenario yeah he ended up imploding and i didn't know that and she actually followed up with me and so she said you told me that and she said i'm so much better now i said yeah i said because we think experiencing emotion is weakness and it's not it takes strength and courage to experience an emotion because our immediate, our default is to push it away, suppress it and act like it's not there because we want to look like we have it together. And that's the biggest threat. Culture will always be the biggest threat to our, our progress as human beings. What would be a good emotion to go through next? Um, potentially maybe love then if we've, just because we've been touching on it briefly. So 
what does love mean to you? And I mean, love comes in so many forms. There's the love for friends, for family, for you know, relationships, for even you know, food or um, hobbies. Or, um, what kind of sticks out to you as a moment where you really felt love or you were that passionate about something? And I guess there's a difference between love and passion, but what does it all mean to you yeah. from your perspective? Well, well, love to me means to benefit the other person at my expense, right? That's that's what love means. Means that I'm choosing to to benefit you at my expense. And um, I've had many many experiences with love, but I will say the most recent one is my 40th birthday. I had they had a surprise birthday for me, and I was completely surprised. And I burst into tears because I had people from all over the world on Zoom. I had people in person. I was just, I literally hadn't felt that much love in a long time. And I know that love is there and it's more than just a feeling, right? But it was just so overwhelming. Like I literally just sat there like this the whole life for like 10 minutes, like just crying. And it felt so good because I think so many of us um, need that affirmation that we're loved everybody, every day. I feel like everybody needs that. And I think for me, I needed that moment because, you know, turning 40 is like such a pivotal time in a, in a, in a person's life, not, a, not just a man's life. And, and, I, and for me, I kind of was down that day. And to get that, that I got love slapped. <laughs> I literally got slapped with love and it was just, it was such a beautiful experience. Another one uh, for me on a romantic one was with my ex-girlfriend and I never, I, I don't think I've ever really told a woman that I, that I loved her. Like I may have said it, but not really like felt it deep in my soul. And my ex-girlfriend, um, we were on the phone, we were broken up and I said to her, I said, you know what? I love you. And I'm like, I wish I would have said that when we were together. And she said it to me. I love you back. And it was just like, because you guys know you've been in love before. And it's just like, well, I'm assuming you've been in love before. But, you know, it's kind of like this gripping, paralyzing, but wonderful, paralyzing feeling. And, um, yeah, so I I feel good knowing that that I loved someone um, in a romantic way that was pure. It's it's just all consuming, isn't it? That that feeling of love when it's a romantic love, it consumes you. Is what I've always felt, and it's so different yes. to like a, a. I have very very strong love for my for my friends, um, very very strong. But it is a different feeling to being in love with someone romantically. But you're right. There's there is this a pure sense to it that it's you're not yeah. trying to get anything out of it. It's just a feeling. Yes. Yes. And I love my fear. I love my friends fiercely. And there are people will tell you, like, if, 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 you, if I can see your friend, I will love you to, you know, like it's overwhelming the love I have for you. Like I'm very protective of you and I want to see you win. You know, like I love my friends and my family, like fiercely. Um, just briefly, because you mentioned kind of your 40th birthday and the idea of that being sort of a very pivotal 
moment, I just want to touch on the idea of sort of, I guess that came into that, the idea of success. And we were talking the other day, um, with one of our other guests about, he was a similar age, actually, I think he just turned 41 and he was talking about how he feels like, um, and he quoted Hamilton and like the, or the musical and the idea of he's running out of time and that he almost has to like speed everything up because he has that sense. So what does, I guess, success mean to you? And is that in any ways you find the idea of success a limiting idea that like, or that makes you feel like you have to follow a certain path or that you have to have achieved things at a certain age or that we have to have our lives mapped out? How does, what kind of emotions does that concept bring up for you? You know, what's funny. So success for me means it's different to me now at 40 than it did when I was 30. When I was 30, success was about achieving. And and at 40, success is about having peace with myself. (laughs) You know, so that's like a a, it's like a different thing. Um, I think um, when I think about success at the time in my 30s, it triggered anxiety. Cause it felt like pressure that you, you know what I mean? Like so many people were so much more successful than me. And I felt like, I felt like I was like behind and I was like, I would pray. I'd be like, God, did I choose the right path? Like it, it you know, it causes you to get very insular about you and, and you can tend, I, at least from my experience to beat yourself up, um, thinking about trying to achieve. And so now at 40, I'm happy that I've achieved uh, what I've achieved, but I'm more I'm more happy that I have success because I know purpose. I know who purpose is. I know I'm not perfect by any means, but I have worked through a majority of of my issues, and I feel like I'm very very close to the journey of wholeness. And so for me, success is like I, I love having achievements, but I've counseled celebrities that you guys won't believe who. I asked them to name five things about themselves that they that they that makes them wonderful and they can't do it. But these are people you see on TV. These are people, you know, who have millions of dollars. And so for me, I don't want that. I don't want to have just achievement. I want to have the full enchilada. So I want to have the the achievement and I want to love myself. I want to have peace. And I want to I don't want my success to have me, but I have my success. And I think a lot for a lot of people that we see the success has them. They don't have the success. And my thing is always about mastering the thing that has mastered you. So you're always you always have have your power. And so for me, success is um, today is about having inward peace and it's about loving yourself and knowing who you are. Would you say that happiness for you is is also similarly about that having that achievement and that inner peace and that self-love? Is that when you think about them all together, is that what happiness means to you? Well, what happiness to me used to be that like, you know, I think for a lot of us happiness, we think of that euphoric state and, you know, that's not really sustainable. In, in my opinion. And, you know, the feeling of happiness, quote unquote, is very ephemeral. But I think the thing that we really are aspiring for is contentment. Being, I'm good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm good with who I am right now. I'm good with the success. I'm good with the achievements. I'm just content. And I think for me, that is much more sustainable in the, the experience of joy. It's much more sustainable than happiness because it's always based off happenings. So what if... I don't get an interview. What if I'm not, if I don't get a new client, 
then what? My happiness goes away. You, you get what I'm saying? Or what if I don't? Um, it, what if I don't get another TV interview? What if things don't go right? So then my happiness goes away. And so I don't want the feeling of happiness to be linked to happenings in my life. I want it to be the choice that I make, that I'm choosing to be content. I'm choosing to be happy. I'm choosing to be positive regardless of what's happening. And that's a hard thing, right? That's not, that's easier said than done, but I think it does boil down to choosing. I think when it comes to, we are so empowered, we're such powerful beings that we can choose the experience we want to have, regardless of what has happened, what's happening to us in life. Because I always say that life happens to us, but life also happens from us. And so I'm choosing, and it's difficult. Like I said, I want to reemphasize that because whoever's listening, like it's it's a difficult choice, but it's a choice nonetheless that you can make. Choose to be happy. Because there are people who have success, who have everything going for them, and they're depressed. One thing I want to ask is, um, with the idea of happiness, I think you said earlier about how you kind of have to go through those tough times as well. I mean, we all go through harder times, but in a sense, for some of us and others, do you think there's almost our joy can be more amplified if we've gone through something harder? Absolutely. I always tell people that a dynamic life is filled with challenges. So if you want to be something significant in this life, know that challenges are going to come and, and your challenges may not look like mine. You know what I mean? But there are challenges nonetheless. So for me, it's interesting that I'm a person, I'm a man who empowers other men in their masculinity and I was bullied and emasculated for mine. You get what I'm saying? So it's like I had to go through all of that pain, losing a father to a heroin overdose, being homeless, dealing with all the things that I had to go through because now I can identify with so many experiences that men are having or just or even my, my, my female clients, like every human being, all spectrums. You know what I mean? I'm able to identify with so many experiences and that's how I'm able to make such a good connection with my clients and the work that I do because I've gone through so many things and, and, and so again like you know I think you you articulated that so well it's amplified the joy gets amplified when we go through challenges the, the happy emotions are amplified when we can go through those experiences but those things it's the it's what we the quote unquote bad things that form us and I always tell people suffering is good for you because suffering leads you to to discover who you really are if you don't know what you're made of how do you know what you can achieve unless you have some adversity you know like a plane takes off against the wind you know what I mean like it, it, it the law lift is against and and um so I, I, I just I think that we, especially a lot of younger people that I that I work with, you know, they want a, a problem free life. And I say, you know, I wish we all could have a problem free life. And I just I think that we need to know that we have the resilience, the resiliency um, to bounce back. And I always use this illustration of a beach ball. I say, what happens when you push a beach ball down in water? And everybody's like, it pops back up. I said, exactly. That's how we have to look at ourselves as beach balls. When life pushes us down, we have to know that we're going to pop back up. But that, but we can't know that until we experience the adversity. Kind of rolling on from that, actually, can we go into sadness and this sort of like, I guess yes. this is the last emotion to touch on really from the core ones that we've picked out. But I guess sadness kind of encompasses everything from um, grief and heartbreak and um, almost yeah. depression and 
all of those ideas yeah. and concepts um, and experiences. So what does that mean to you and how has that shaped you or um, led you to where you are today? Um, you know, sadness was an emotion that I felt most of my teenage years because I was, I was bullied and I was made fun of so severely. And it was just like, I didn't know who I was. I had no um, grasp of who I was as, as a man and as a human being. But um, sadness for me, the relationship I have with it, I, again, I think it's one of those things that's kind of like the cocoon process, like the depression, the grief. If we look at it, it depends on how we look at uh, the perspective of it. You know, my father passed away um, suddenly from a heroin overdose. I, I, I never thought that I could experience sadness to that degree. Um, it was a very, because my father was my biggest cheerleader. And I recognized in that moment, even though he wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man that loved his children. You know what I mean? And so like the sadness for me was, and the regret that was attached to it was that I didn't tell him that. I didn't get a chance to tell him like, daddy, you know what? I know that you have your issues and I know that you've been through so many things, but you've been a great father. And I, I was sad that I couldn't tell him that. I was sad um, that his life ended like that. I was sad that he made that choice. And if I would have, maybe if I would have said something, uh, maybe if I would have called him that day, he wouldn't have made that choice because he was clean for like 10 years. And um, so the, the, as you, I, like, as you so eloquently put the depression, all the things that were attached to it, that was something that I, I felt for years. Um, if I'm honest, like I would say like the later half of my twenties, it was just all sadness, depression, all of that stuff. But I think that's that time though, again, and how I used it, I started to be introspective and think about my life and who I wanted to be and what were the what were the good things about my life, right? So I took the time to start, you know, getting into reflection, having that, that inward articulation with myself. And that's how I started, to, that's how I started to uh, had the desire to help people. So the sadness and the depression led me to being the person that I am today, led me to being the coach, the, the dynamic coach that I am today. So that time of my life, again, I uh, want to emphasize that nothing is wasted in our life if we don't, if we allow it. Um, so yeah, sadness for me was the impetus to me becoming who I am. I'd be really interested to know, because you're such an inspiration, Purvis, to so many men in terms of pulling yourself out of that sadness and depression, learning to choose happiness again and again, and being able to be so comfortable and open and honest about your emotions and encouraging other men to do the same. When you were younger, did you have many or anyone who who was like that male role model that you, you would see being open and emotional or is it something that you drew from inside of yourself because you needed you needed to be that person I, i'll tell you this is this one experience with my father that i say that is the most powerful experience i've ever had with my dad and i remember he sat me and my brother and sister down one day and he was cooking us breakfast and he said to us he said listen uh, me and your mom are probably getting a divorce and he said it's my fault because i have a, a problem with drugs and even just in that demonstration, it showed me the power of being transparent and being vulnerable. 
And so I was like, and I was like 16 at the time. And I was like, I said, oh, so it's okay. You know what I mean? Like I was just learning, like I was learning, like from that experience, he taught me the power of transparency and vulnerability. And, and, and to answer your question, the reason why I started doing the work that I do currently is because I didn't have someone when I was growing up. I didn't have that model. Only, the only modeled experience I had was that moment my father was being transparent and vulnerable. And so I wanted to give young men what I didn't have. And I also understood that, um, you know, as we progress in life, as we become more successful as a culture, our ability to suppress and our ability to um, become overwhelmed with emotions or things that we don't understand, it becomes weaker. And so we have to be able to deal with them. Hence why African-American men have one of the highest suicide rates globally. You know what I mean? So it's like, I was like, okay, if I was thinking about suicide ideation when I was a teenager, which I did, and I didn't go through it because I had some type of strength to suppress it and keep it moving. And if they don't have that same thing that I had, I, it was a 911 for me. So I was like, we have to um, teach these men how to cope and how to how to heal or at least process or, or at least articulate what is their experience. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we need I mean, I think it's the system. You know, we have you know, you've heard the prison, the, the school to prison pipeline. We have to, first of all, we have to understand that depression in young boys and young men of color looks different than any other demographic. So what you may deem as ADHD could really be depression. And, and so like we have to, we also have to understand that psychology is not an exact science. And so we have to come up with various modalities and various therapeutic approaches that can help African-American boys thrive. We have to change the system and a system that um, says like, yo, we'll put you in jail or, or, or we'll, you'll be brutalized by the police. The system needs to say that we want you to thrive. We want you to be whole. So the framing of our education system, the framing of the governmental system has to change. But also too, we have to incorporate a lot more social emotional learning into curriculum. And, and I mean, what I mean by social emotional, I mean like real social emotional. So like talking about molestation, talking about uh, being emasculated, talking about uh, toxic masculinity, talking about creating safe spaces for young men that has to be something where safe spaces are created often. And, 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 and how can we help? It's just being supportive of that and just being an advocate for it. Like these young men, they need, they need a space. They need a safe space and they need people. We need to have people who are trained, who are skilled to work with that demographic. And um, we need to let them know that we want them to thrive. We don't want them to just um, get by. We don't want them to just um, just be okay. We want them to be whole human beings. And I think that's the narrative has, has to change around that. I'm so glad that you did bring up education because um, m my job is working with kindergartners. And so I'm really interested in in kind of those early years, how that shapes them as they grow up. And I've been reading more and re researching more about um, particularly black boys who are age four or five and the way they get labeled yeah. as disruptive or violent. Whereas if you compared it to uh, a counterpart class with a white boy, they would, they would label him as like, oh, he's energetic. He just needs a bit of extra attention. Rambunctious, Rambunctious yeah. exactly. Yeah. And like you said, the school yeah. prism that, that road is because once you start labeling 
a boy as as aggressive or disrupted when he's only three or four years old and then he starts being left out of the class or made to sit by himself and then mm-hmm. moving up a year to primary school and secondary school he's still got that label so each teacher has this preconception that he is going to be violent or aggressive or disruptive or is stupid because he's not learning because he's not in the classroom mm-hmm. and so it's it's just yeah. so interesting when you start to change that and you start to tweak that just by allowing the teachers to to actually look at the child and think okay why am i labeling him as disruptive like what is my preconception why if he was any other boy any other race would i think and do the same things so i think it's really important that you bring it up because it starts young it really does and in terms of creating open emotional confident men starts when they are three years old when they're when they're told in the classroom no stop crying girls cry or babies cry which is something that really unfortunately i still hear it's it's labeled like oh that's a bit girly or that's what babies do and it's it's not the language we should be using at all so i'm really glad that you brought that up about education Absolutely. And, you know, the successful programs, there's a successful program in California where they incorporate mindfulness into the curriculum. So rather than go to detention or in school suspension, they have they go to the meditation, room, the mindfulness room. And those things are helping where where behavioral problems have gone out significantly because now they're looking at they're looking at black boys as whole human beings. And I think that's the way education has to be. It has to appeal to the whole human being. Our last question that we always ask everybody is um, the idea that when looking for happiness in our lives, often if you know we're going through a harder time or even just on a day-to-day basis, especially with quarantines and lockdowns, um, this idea of like having bubbles of happiness. So it could be a small thing like the perfect cup of coffee, or it could be, you know, a text message from someone who says, you know, are you okay? Or just these small things. So what to you are these sort of like maybe mundane things that bring happiness or joy to your day-to-day life? Let me tell you something. I love to do uh, choreography to Janet Jackson. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love to recreate choreography. Um, I love to watch SpongeBob. Um, I I love my Netflix. Uh, Hanging out with friends, house party app. Um, I have many pockets, actually. I love go running. I love to eat. Uh, So those pockets of like happiness have become much bigger. Those bubbles have become much bigger for me because now um, my work is mainly online anyway. So most of my clients, so quarantine for me wasn't as bad for me as it was for everyone else. So, um, you know, and the, you know, those things, I love creating TikTok videos. I, yeah, that's I love that. <laughs> Those are my pockets of happiness. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And honestly, it's been so valuable. And thank you for being so open and honest with us and with our listeners, because it's so important that we have this conversation and you are such an advocate for that. So thank you for kind of bringing that to us and for um, being such a powerful force in kind of creating change and helping to facilitate that So. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very I appreciate much. It. So before um, we um, thank you so before much for we say me. goodbye, could you um, tell our listeners uh, where can they find your book and maybe a little <laughs> yeah quick uh, quick. Gotcha. <laughs> 
got you. Um, so my, uh, my name is Purvis Taylor III. I am an award-winning celebrity life coach, um, speaker and author of the book Survival Mode, the book that we've been talking about. It's a book that teaches men how to process and navigate through their emotions. If you would like a copy, you can get it off Amazon.com or you can get it off survivalmode.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Purvis Taylor. Thanks for listening to Getting Personal. Don't forget you can like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And give us a review and a rating. It helps other listeners find us in the charts. We'll see you next time.